And then there was one time when we went to taste at Windsor when a query, I think, approached us just before we were going in to taste and said, the Queen's in residence and she wonders whether you'd like to have lunch. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. We don't talk much about the wine world on the show, but we could not pass up the opportunity to have legendary wine critic and big ideas person Jancis Robinson into the studio. Wine talk can be a real snooze, but this wide-ranging chat is hardly the audio version of swirling and spitting. We talk about her pioneering wine show on the BBC and how she has translated wine to a wide audience for over four decades. We learned a great deal here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Jancis Robinson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you. I've uh, I followed your writing for for a long time. Um, the big caveat here is I'm I'm not a wine drinker. I don't drink. Uh, it's been many years, but I certainly uh, write about wine and spirits, uh, and I and I have tremendous respect for it. But I also want to get uh, a little bit. I want to like poke some holes in some myths with this conversation. I think <laughs> you've, you've done such a great job at your website and, and writing for the Financial Times doing so. But first, to, to get into it, I wanted to get a sense of your history and just like your background of getting exposed to wine, maybe air quotes, serious wine, uh, while you're studying at Oxford. How did you get the wine bug? How did it bite you? <laughs> I wasn't brought up with wine, which was typical of people of my generation. Um, But there was, and I think this is true for so many people who end up spending their lives devoted to wine, there was one wine that lit the flame and it was a a red burgundy. It was a 1959 Chambol Musigny Les Amoureurs. Um, And it was just, I was lucky because I had a boyfriend whose whose father gave him a bit too much money and some of that was spent on me. Um, (laughs) And it, it just tasted so much better than student plonk and <laughs> i i just realized because I, I loved food and wine generally but i i just realized that here was a liquid that contained so many different elements you know like kind of history and geography and um psychology probably and it delivered a huge amount of sensual pleasure but i could tell that it would keep the brain alive and interested as well you know lots and lots of of uh, intellectual stuff too. Well, you write that wine. You're drawn to wine because it's a huge sensual pleasure with real intellectual stimulation. The merging of the two, which I think is such a sharp observation, um, and you're not really you're not getting that with like broccoli or ice cream or, <laughs> or other foods that we canonize a bit in food writing. But you're not getting that blend of intellectual and just interesting flavors. I suppose what distinguishes wine to a certain extent is. Its ability to age and evolve, not just to last, but to evolve in a really interesting way over time so that with good wine, it will taste completely different after, say, 10 years um, in the bottle. But also, when you look at a wine label, um, almost uniquely, it can tell you exactly which spot on the globe grew it and when it was made and that's that's really adds enormously to how interesting it can be because an awful lot of foodstuffs they're just kind of plonked on the shelf for the plate and 
Um, I mean, certainly it's it's getting better that retailers and particularly restaurateurs more and more are naming the grower and or, or exactly where it came from, but it, they won't usually it won't usually have that um, specificity. No, we live in a world of metadata. I mean, metadata <laughs> drives our universe. And and for, for, for a long time, even, I mean, now to your point, like food is, is certainly not traceable in the way that certain government regulated products like wine are required by law to put a number of p- bullet points on the, on the label. Although, jumping in here yeah. on a little tangent, um, until now, wine has escaped legislation that requires producers to list every ingredient, unlike foods. But I really don't like that. And I've been campaigning against it. I wouldn't say it's anything to do with me. But the EU are bringing in requirement that wine producers do list the ingredients Mm. on the labels, or if not explicitly on the label, that the back label will have a QR code that you can access. Chances, what what are, okay, like me speaking just generally, like I'm like, grapes and like what else is in wine like let's just get there go there sure well it all depends of course how artisanal the the wine is and there are wines that literally are just grape juice and um sunshine i yeah, suppose time sunshine <laughs> yeah. yes um but it's true that um grape juice can deteriorate quite rapidly, like all fresh fruit juices and and a lot of fruits. So since Roman times, a little bit of sulfur or sulfur dioxide has been added. It's like a kind of antioxidant and um, antibacterial, you know, all that kind of thing. It's not evil, even though um, wine labels say it contains sulfites. That's a kind of slight mm, um, misconception. So it can have a little bit of that. Uh, a little bit of uh, sulfur dioxide um, or sulfites. Um, in cool years or climates in the old days before global warming, sugar was quite often added to the fermentation vat to give the vintner something more to ferment, get the yeast, give it more to work on. Uh, it wasn't. It didn't remain in the, in the finished wine as sweetness, but it just slightly increased the alcohol content. That has become rare, although last year, 21, was so cool that quite a lot of French vignerons were What's the word for that when you had sugar? Chaptalization. Chaptalization, uh, right. I love that word. Yes, after a French government minister <laughs> called Chaptal. Yeah. Uh, in hotter climates, it's very, very common to add acidity to make the, the wine kind of fresher, crisper tasting. And in um, some really warm climates... Uh, some producers have added water because the, the the naturally fermented wine is just too strong. And actually, there there have been very, very few. And then there are additives, you know, the sort of additives that you see on your food labels, sort of fresheners and yeast and enzymes and all, you know, tr- treatments kind of things. Who are Oh, and some producers add colouring matter. Yeah which is crazy in a way. Well, if you look at some of the wines, you get like, this is not naturally occurring color. Uh, yeah, sort of strange purple. <laughs> yeah, what's up like with this that? hue? It's like it's like Welch's grape. It's, yeah, like a, exactly. it's a weird, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm really looking forward to um, sort of the more industrial wine producers having to specify mm-hmm. on their labels exactly what they've done, yeah. what they've added. Uh, but I admire the people who, who add as little as possible and we'll be able to identify them in future. Yeah, that, uh, it's, a, it's a smart uh, position to have. It, it, more transparency, the better. Um, I love your your BBC 
television work, BBC4 show, the wine program. I caught a bunch of clips on YouTube. Like <laughs> I found one from 1983 or, or the, the mid 80s about Merlot that I'm going to link to in the show notes. I like you like hired like you had like you had like helicopters. You had like a budget there. That was a great program. They, they, it was fun to do, um, and I think it was the world's first TV series about wine. And I keep saying that, and no one's challenged me, so I think it <laughs> might, must be true. Keep saying it'll, it'll be true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, it was. It was. It was quite groundbreaking because you know, for instance, the BBC wouldn't touch wine for a while because they thought they'd get a whole load of. Um, temperance campaigners. Interesting. You know, yeah. Really. But it, that changed. Um, it, uh, in fact, I did quite a big series for the BBC in the nineties, and I've just actually hosted um, an online wine course for the mm-hmm. BBC, BBC Maestro. My yeah. question with this is, how do you get an, a wide audience, like a like a general, like a public television uh, audience, into wine through 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 like a program it's, it's really really difficult yeah, um, it's hard. visually because so little moves with wine exactly. I used to wonder why when I was traveling with a film crew the, the cameraman got so excited when he saw a bottling line because for, for us wine writers it's the most boring thing in the world <laughs> but it's because it moves yeah. there's a bit of action right. uh, and apart from the wind blowing a vine and people making a barrel um, you, yes, you could film people tasting, but it, as you Ooh. know from food, it is so difficult. You never want to see anybody swirling a glass. No, either. that, I that mean, just makes you is, feel uncomfortable. It's not a spectator sport, is it? It's. You uh, might see some cows in Burgundy or Bordeaux <laughs> yeah. just in the field. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, um, in fact, I think the television series we did two of them that I'm most proud of was called Vintner's Tales, and they were just little short ten minute vignettes about really amazing characters in wine we we slightly we our our informal title for the series was weirdos in the wine trade but they (laughs) they weren't all weird but they were idiosyncratic and and they were funny uh and you know it's people i mean people stories are are visual aren't they absolutely it's a real art to wine writing is adding the people element um i've worked stories (laughs) stories i worked on punch for years with Mm -hmm. those guys when we were working with them closely and just trying to get people into the pages is is so important for the general audience. I agree with you fully. Mm. And and I think, you know, I'm often asked about certain regions and countries, how can we get our wines better known? And it's really often a function of the characters and the people. And if if people with big personalities are prepared to travel and, and yeah. talk to people, I mean, think about... The, the late, much-lamented Jim Clendenon of Aubon Climat. He was a mm-hmm. giant character. He travelled all over the world, and yeah. he did so much, not just for his uh, Southern California winery, but for the California wine in general. Let's talk about the Queen, HRH. We can, you can call You're her... You're segueing from Jim Clendenon to the Queen. I, I, that's, I, a, that's an interesting I'm one. Trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, capture the, 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 the kind of size of your, uh, your audience in the UK and, and in the US, but... You served on, uh, you're a member of the Royal Household Wine Committee, which advises the Queen's Cellar, which uh, is interesting because, yes, I do watch The Crown and I, and I do think they drink a little bit of wine, you know, up in Buck- Buckingham Palace and all the various Windsor Castle and all those places. So what's this mean? Like, wh- were, you, uh, were you actually doing tastings for the, for the royal family? Oh, it's ongoing. It's, um, of course, COVID uh, brought yeah. a bit of tasting to a halt. But normally, um, three or four times a year, myself and the other four 
members of the committee, four or five, who are in the trade, we go into the cellars at Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle um, in response to a tender that's been put out so that we're blind taste a whole load of wines that people want to sell to the royal cellar and decide among ourselves which ones to buy. But they're chiefly for entertaining rather than the royal family individuals. General consumption, yeah. right. So there, a lot of it is for giant receptions. You know, there could be 250 people. And if we choose something that's too expensive, then we get, you know, the press saying, this is shocking. Very interesting because, you know, a state dinner here in the States would um, – Everything is political. Like every choice, every chef, every every yeah, yeah. Pour, every every item on that menu is publicized. But what you're saying is kind of the opposite. You're saying you go in and taste blind. You pick the wines that you think taste great, and then you serve them to 500 people at a reception. So how does it how does it not become political if you're picking like a wine from like a, a region that maybe isn't. Um, I don't know, represented by the by the queen. Or, <laughs> well, these big receptions tend to be that the you know it could be everyone in the restaurant business, for instance, uh, and they w- the, the wines chosen for them won't be widely reported. The ones that are widely reported are for the state banquets. I was lucky enough to go to one at Windsor Castle for. Um, Carla Bruni and I always remember her name before oh, Sarkozy. Oh, the, Sarkozy. Sarkozy, the old yeah, president. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she's cooler. Yeah, Just on the record. Yeah, much cooler. Yeah, um, party guest. And they do report. They, they the press scrutinizes minutely the wines sold, um, not sold, uh, served. served at at those banquets. But funnily enough, they are not chosen by us. They're chosen by the Foreign Office's seller. Got it. So, uh, what's your interaction with the Queen? I mean, have you have you had an audience? Have you met her? Uh, I just I say this because I think our audience is is obviously fascinated. It's like an endless well of content for Americans. She is pretty amazing, isn't she? She's her incredible. Age. What a show! Yeah, uh, yeah. The Crown and her history. Yeah. Like, um, well, I'd, yes, her crown. I, I don't think the Crown is identical to the Queen's life. I would put that on the record. Fair <laughs> enough. I, I I certainly respect that take. I, um, yeah. But yes, I was. I uh, she. Um, gave me my honour, my OBE, Mm. in 2003. Then I joined the Royal Household Wine Committee in 2005. And then there was one time when we went to taste at Windsor when her equerry, I think, approached us just before we were going in to taste and said, the Queen's in residence and she wonders whether you'd like to have lunch with her. (laughs) And so we kind of said, shall we, shall we? (laughs) Twist my arm, yeah. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, no, we did. And that was fun. There were about... 12 people around the table mm, or something. Mm, um, mm. But uh, that's the only time. And uh, yes, I've been to a reception or two, but much bigger. Wonderful. And a state banquet. But, yeah. Though I, 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 thanks for those memories. I, I really, I hope, I hope she's around forever. I mean, really, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the hope. Um, let's talk about uh, a Jancis Robinson tasting, you know, be it a, an Anderson Valley Pinot or White Burgundy. How are you uh, running a tasting? I think that's some part of the mystery of what you do is this tasting and how do you decide which wine is better than the other? Mm. Well, I, I participate in so many different sorts of tastings. Got it. And sadly, the Royal Household ones are some of the few that I can do blind. I love blind tasting, but blind tasting requires A and other or others to set it up for you and, you know, number the bottles and unmask them and all that and serve you and all that sort of thing. So that's quite rare. Um, normally, I mean, London is a fabulous place as a wine writer because we're at a bit of a crossroads of the world of wine. Exporters tend to come to us. You could go to four tastings a day in the sort of height of the 
season, really, in London. So I try and go to as many interesting tastings, um, trade tastings, as uh, there are, but they're very, very rarely blind. Um, Then during lockdown, of course, I couldn't go to the wine, so the wine came to me, and I was uh, tasting masses of wine at home, which was nice because it meant I could linger over the wine. I could see what it was like with food, visit it the next day. You know, you can't do that at a crowded trade tasting. Uh, what else do I do? Um, sometimes people will, will organise a blind tasting. but um, And some, of course, going to the regions and, and then tasting with a producer in situ. In situ, mm. in, in, on the scene. And I think, you know, when you get to t- speak with a producer and do a portfolio tasting in a, in a region like Rioja or like... Vina Verde or wherever it may California, that's got to give you an extra level of excitement. It's great. I mean, it is, as I discovered during lockdown, difficult to write about a region if you haven't visited it. And, you know, that's why, for instance, these great big wine fairs aren't really of interest to wine writers because mm-hmm. you need to see the producers in situ. But I think as long as you've been to a region once... It, it makes a huge difference. And now that travel, or recently has, travel has been more difficult, mm-hmm. um, I, I felt quite confident about writing about wines I was tasting at home, but from a region that I had visited or from someone that I, was, I spoke to or, you know, was communicating with. Isn't there, there's like nothing better when the winemaker makes you lunch? I mean, it, they, they kind of like, I know you're a professional, so you can't be like clouded by this. But when like you're like outside at a, at a wood table. Oh, outside. Come on. The, I mean, I mean, we Brits love eating outside. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, love, we, under a vine shaded terrace. Is I mean, the perfect. It, it, it's truly uh, the magic of going to a winery and having some food. I mean, or it could be like in a big setting, too. It doesn't have to be like outside in like a little winery. It could be in like a large place in Napa but it's still like having the wine with food mm. my question is is in terms of um, your travels um, is there a region that you think the wine and the food lives in harmony mm. in like the best way this is a tough question yeah well I think generally you know, over time the food has evolved to to be a natural partner for the, the local wine although I think I would I would hi- uh, highlight Piemonte, perhaps, as just having fabulous, fabulous food and fabulous, fabulous wines that do go together. Um, and I suppose there are sort of classics, you know, like the sort of soft goat's cheese and Sancerre and things like that. Um, Mendoza, the big, hearty Malbecs with a kind of, you know, an asado. Mm, the beef grilled yeah, out, out yeah, in the out in yeah. the. Uh, and open. I've never, ever, I've yet to have a chimichurri sauce that's as good as anything you can get in Argentina. I don't know what the the magic ingredient is probably beef fat maybe i think you put well, beef fat I don't into know, it no because it's 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 kind of herbs and yeah and and vinegar i think um i think there is that little bit of they put something in in, in this i've never been to argentina but i think they put a little i mean because those herbs grow great in around the world and yeah maybe the vinegar from the wine mm, don't know anyway. i i love i love uh that you went all over the globe I guess is there a is there a, a region that you think is is emerging in terms of uh, the food and the wine coming together that you wanted to you know marinate on a little bit? I think uh, Greece would be a, an obvious uh, example, and because um, great, really great wines and very very particular food there, and of course because the climate is so dry, the flavors tend to be very strong, very strongly accentuated. 
great call. Yeah. I want to know for you know our listeners, we're all home cooks here, and we're all we're all entertainers in some way. We might not entertain a lot, but at least once a year we're entertaining. And I wanted to know, you know, what you know. I've got this these bottles of wine. You know, I've got like a couple wines. I'm not even going to say what type of wine. I'm just going to say I have a couple wines to serve. What is a great dish that you can serve that won't like? blow out your palate and like that will let the wine speak so you've spent a little bit of money on this wine but you want to serve it with some food i think a big mistake we make is is we add flavors to the the canapes or the first course that just absolutely destroy us um so is there some way that to get us to enjoy the wine and have a nice bite too is is your scenario people aren't yet at the table? Yes, the good question. Like course correction, we're going to call these canapes or, or appetizers or d'oeuvres, wherever you're from and whatever you okay, call them. Right. Um, well, it sounds very boring, but if they're good enough quality, and I think maybe I'm being too picky, but you know, if if you're handing around, you know, there's four different kinds of cheese plus some charcuterie plus some olive. It's very fiddly, and and maybe in an early part of an evening. You actually just want people to relax a bit and and put something in their mouths. So really, really high-quality nuts, sort of spiced nuts. Well, not too heavily spiced nuts, but sort of salted nuts or or little cheese biscuits. There's a Sally Clark is a, a sort of Alice Waters protégé with the lovely Clark's Restaurant in London. Yeah. And she makes these just gorgeously rich cheese shortbreads, you know, um, that slightly, slightly crumble in the mouth but not in the hand. Uh, she she's, has a tendency to make them too spicy for wine. So, mm-hmm. in fact, we had a big party quite recently, and I ordered a whole load of those cheese shortbreads, specifically asking Sally not to put too much spice in them, and she didn't get the she, she didn't, didn't get, get the, the memo. Drift, and, and she's got Janice Robinson bringing in over wines, and, and she's going to like bring some curry powder in there and water. <laughs> I love that pick because I think I, we have Parmesan uh, shortbread on taste, and I'm, I'll, I'll link to a, a recipe in our oh, show Oh, good, notes that sounds perfect. I think that's a really, really smart uh, decision. I, I do agree that when you have like four cheeses, and they're beautiful cheeses, yeah. and maybe some sapersata, it gets too fiddly. Yeah, to quote yeah. you, let's talk about a flavor. A wonderful flavor, potentially the best flavor, but a flavor to absolutely avoid uh-huh. when uh, trying to accentuate wine. I think most there aren't that many things yeah. that really kill wine, but too much chili yep. just kind of puts heat. Your heat. You know, your palate is on fire and just can't taste anything, so that would be a problem. And um, globe artichokes. Uh, there's this funny thing happens in mm-hmm. your mouth that you're not really tasting things as you should uh, immediately after eating a globe artichoke leaf. Those are uh, in good choices. I mean, I, I like that. My, my two are black pepper. I think when you like, if you're trying to pair wine with cacio pepe, to me, that is so impossible. It just blows me out. My That's palate. funny because the, Tim Hanai, who's a fellow master of wine, who researched quite a lot of mm-hmm. the whole such taste thing, he, for a long time, ad- positively advocated adding black pepper to, I think he said it, accent- it if you had something that had a lot of tannin in it, you know, the chewy thing mm. in young red wine, it made it less obvious. I think that was it. But I, I know you said that Tim's his name? Tim Hanai, H-A-N-N-I. 
I'm not going to dispute Tim. I, I, feel, I feel Tim knows what he's talking about. I'm just a guy, and I, I well, respect Well, he, that, interestingly, yeah. he no longer drinks at all yeah, either. Yeah. But, but he did do a lot of research. That's all I'm saying. Uh, my other one is citrus. I think citrus, like if you're, if you're doing a citrus salad, it's just mm. so hard. Yeah, it is, especially, especially, yes, citrus acidity. I think vinegar is not is as um, much of a problem. Vinegar is less. I mean, mm. a nice vinegar. I mean, salad and a, a white crisp wine so great together um i'm gonna go a little lightning round here because i know this could we could we could marinate for a while on these topics but i mean oh i can't believe i wrote this down is <laughs> the most underrated wine region jansis i mentioned greece i think portugal is a very obvious candidate it's having trouble getting the prices it deserves and what i love about both greece and portugal is that they have this massive array of indigenous grape varieties which each of which have strong characters and uh, provide us with so many different tastes from the usual diet of cabernet merlot chardonnay Mm -hmm. sauvignon um and and portugal also has a, a range of amazing terroirs as well so portugal should be high on everybody's list along with greece south africa is wildly underappreciated here in the us not so much in the uk but there is this new wave of wonderfully competent winemakers mm-hmm. discovering old vines um doing their best to coax really interesting wines out of them uh, that are again unlike the kind of you know norm if you like uh, so I, I would pick those, what am I mentioned? Three, yeah, as my, my leading um, places Love to look those. I, back to Portugal, are we talking like Douro Red? Yeah, Douro, and Douro Whites now. Oh, whites Because they're Douro. getting very good at identifying the best bits of the Douro for white wine, mm-hmm. you know, higher elevations and things like that. And they've got lovely great varieties. Alentejo is doing some mm-hmm. great stuff. Down. Mm. So they, um, and cool pronunciation. <laughs> down. Down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and Vino Verge. Um, no, honestly, I, I, you I, and Portugal makes some stunningly good value wine. Oh my god, Vino Verde. I, went, I had a producer called Afros once mm-hmm. that was insanely crisp mm. and just felt like a Vino Verde is like the, too cheap. Like yeah, n- ridiculous. And yeah. and we, you know, initially we were taught it's called green wine and it's for drinking very very young right but actually some of them now are aging beautifully yeah i love those regions i want to know uh then okay let's go to the other side of the coin is there an overrated region that you're maybe spending you're, you're there's a little bit of a tax because like the the like are we are we talking like napa i'm just like i'm not leading the witness but <laughs> i'm like are there overpriced over oh yes wines gosh yes from there certain are, regions uh, there are hundreds of overpriced wines but they're the ones that billionaires are chasing yeah um i think the burgundians can't believe what's happened to their prices thanks to this you know each wine produced is only produced mm-hmm. in small quantities the number of billionaires is rising rapidly the proportion of them getting into wine is also rising so that there's just a kind of inflationary spiral there yeah um and same is true of the really top Bordeaux's as well. Mm-hmm. Those two regions, I mean, it is the crashing of of commerce and just like millennial uh, billionaires. Literally, there are hundreds of them out there who are finally getting into wine and and a lot of Asian. There's a lot of Asian interest in yeah. in wine. People with very deep pockets. Deep there pockets. Too. Yeah. Um, you know, is there a one producer? I, 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 I say this for our audience because like it's tough to go shallow, but with you in, in the audience, but I appreciate this. Is there a producer that we should seek out that just is a great value or just an interesting producer? 
I would say not leaving South Africa behind. The leading member of the South African New Wave producers is called Eben Saadi, S for sugar, A-D-I-E. And his um, label is Saadi Family. Mm. And he he's admirable. He's, a, he's just the sort of person I was talking about earlier who travels and, and inspires people and makes people think South Africa is a great wine producer. Always evolving, uh, really worried about climate change. So he's gone through the huge hoops of getting new grape varieties through quarantine and planting them because he realizes that he's got to have Mediterranean grape varieties can, that can withstand really hot, dry summers. Because things are changing Cape Town and changing no everywhere. Water in that, yeah, Africa, Cape yeah. Town's had terrible drought. Um, and he has t- two top wines a white called Palladius beginning with P for Peter, and a red called Columella, um, sort of, you know, classical names. And they're both blends, which mm-hmm. change every year, um, and really serious wine made with a um, huge amount of integrity. They're not discoveries in the sense that, you know, they're 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 not $100 a bottle, but they're, they're 70 or It can be north like of that. 50, which is a price mm-hmm. point for mm-hmm. some. Yeah. But still, it's Sardis, you said? Sardi family. Great, Sardi yeah. family. Yeah. So we've gone we've gone a, a while, and I haven't brought up natural wine. Like, mm. and I Although we did. nearly got there when we were talking about additives. We did, and then, like this low-intervention wine movement. <laughs> yeah. We were talking about additives, and I, I, I had a little restraint. I was like, let's not go there. <laughs> Chances, I mean, this is the number one topic that I think our listeners are are interested in talking, hearing about is like the idea of the natural wine movement. So I'm not going to even lead and, and say like even give you, <laughs> I'm not going to give you a specific question. I'm going to say, tell us what we should know about natural wine right now. <laughs> Can I tell you what I think about natural? wine I think right that's now. what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what do you think about natural wine? <laughs> can't believe I, I asked that. Wow. <laughs> um, Obviously, I'm from kind of more, you know, I've been writing about wine for 45 years or more. So I'm from the kind of traditional, um, what they would call conventional wine uh, world. And what's distressed me is that quite a lot of my peers tasted one or two of the early natural wines, which a lot of them were faulty, technically faulty. And they just sort of used that as an excuse to write off the whole natural wine movement and now I'm never never going to drink natural wine. Then the other thing that distresses me is go into a certain sort of Paris wine bar, especially in the northeast of Paris, mm. and you can't get a glass of wine without being subjected to a sermon, a lecture mm. about how evil all non-natural wine is. And I don't like I don't like the polarization that the natural wine movement has engendered, even though it didn't intend. So you're saying, so. like a place like Vervolet that yeah, that, that yes. specializes in natural wine, Canal Saint Martin, you're going to get a lecture about yeah, we're yeah. the only way to go. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I and yet over time, I'm finding more and more good. The, the proportion of good natural wine is increasing. So all these people who are just writing it off, I think. Are, cutting off their own noses to spite their faces sort of thing. And also there's an awful lot of wine that doesn't sell itself on the basis of being natural, but actually is, but it, it has qualities sufficient to, to sell itself without leaning on mm-hmm. the natural. I mean, I'm thinking of something even like Chateau Latour in Bordeaux, very famous, very expensive so famous. wine. Yeah. Um, but to all intents and purposes, it's, it's pretty much a natural wine. But they'd never, you know, say... We're part of the kind of uh, sandal-wearing beard 
it's you know bearded um, movement. <laughs> um, so I think it's exciting that the conventional wine world has been challenged, and that a whole slew of potential new wine drinkers is much more interested in natural wine than conventional. It's like wine. Dan Barber saying he has an organic vegetable on his yeah. menu. It's like like Chateau Latour is saying they're just not going to say it. No. They're just going to yeah. like let yes. it present yeah. itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think my in my ideal world, the the conventional camp, it, it, the conventional camp is definitely using fewer and fewer additives every year. There's no doubt about that. Then the the proportion of organically grown wine and biodynamically grown wine is is increasing. So they're moving more to a kind of natural um, position. Um, and I would love to see the two camps kind of in the, it's not going to happen overnight, but the coinciding more. So we don't have these two camps that are inimical. That, I love that yeah. uh, that point of view. And, and I think one last question about natural wine. There's this perception from like the lay wine drink that there's like a flavor profile for natural wines. Like the, you drink a dirty and rowdy bottle and it's like turnt. I mean, whatever. I'm not a wine guy, but I've had some bottles that are like, wow, this does not taste like wine. How do you respond to like people writing that there's a flavor profile that's like somehow like a little off or turnt or I don't know effervescent I don't know what the word is but I suppose um, I would then maybe give them say why don't you have a lovely you know Lapierre Beaujolais that will taste taste mainstream to you Mm -hmm. but will actually be natural great response I mean (laughs) it's it's exactly like it it is a great wine that happens to be a natural wine Mm. Um, I have a few more questions I wanted to hear a little bit about uh, – we talk about food media here. We have journalists and writers and editors on often. And I wanted to hear about your website. You've recently sold the website. Mm-hmm. And I and I know um, that probably took a lot of – there's probably a lot of mixed emotions. But how do you do that? Like you, you, your name, it's like a .com with your name. JazzRobinson.com. Like, there you go. Yes, Let's plug it. Yes, yeah. So what does that mean when you sell it? And what's the – how do we enjoy what you're doing right now online? Well, I'm still very, very much – there and Hope in so. fact, writing. My, I'm I'm working my fingers to the bone, doing far too much on it still. Um, and so I had I had five reasons to sell. Um, one was that I wanted more people to know about it, and I haven't got a marketing bone in my body, so I, I needed a kind of nice big company that could do that. Mm-hmm. And I I also felt that the U.S. was the obvious place to to find a, a new owner. Um, because we're pretty saturated in the, in the UK, and we only had about a third of uh, members mm. who are American, and I'm sure it could be a, mm. a It's a membership portion. program? It's about a third of the articles are free, mm-hmm. but the two-thirds, you have to be a member behind the paywall, if you like. So it's a mm-hmm. subscription-only website. Um, I wanted a future for it that would, but would allow me to concentrate on what I enjoy doing, which is writing and tasting, and not be hassling with the kind of EU VAT forms and th- yeah. things like yeah. that. Um, and um, I wanted to sort of keep its its values and all that kind of thing. So, and tech, I mean, you know, you need a big, this is a tech, it's a digital, digital Product, publisher, yeah, re- yeah. Recurrent Ventures. And they have, um, uh, I don't know, 27 or something, various websites, including Saveur, in fact, the, you know, the website of mm-hmm. the old, print 
um, food magazine. And so it just seemed like a, a great fit, really. Smart. Mm. It's great to, to, to partner with a larger publisher that can work on the tech. And you've hired Elaine Shukin-Brown, I hope I pronounced yes. that correctly. And she's your top North uh, editor, North American editor. Um, and she comes from an indigenous background. She's, an she's in- Alaskan. Alaskan. She's from Alaska, yeah. Um, I think that that point I wanted to ask you about is is really important. And I think, you know, we're trying to hire with diversity of mind and, and get really a variety of point of view. So yeah. so what's her work like? And maybe we'll have her on the podcast. At yeah, some point. you should. Definitely Absolutely. should. She's, she's very, very articulate. Um, and obviously she's there to develop the American coverage uh, because it's not so easy to do that from London, really. You need – in yeah. fact, when we've also got um, – Samantha Cole Johnson. She's specializing in the Pacific Northwest. She's an Oregonian. So we are very much beefing up the coverage of, of American wine. And both Elaine and I have been have really taken quite a stand on the whole diversity mm-hmm. widening of, you know, it is when I think back to not very many years, how irredeemably white the whole wine world was. And it is moving, it is changing, it is widening. Uh, but we've got to keep at it and, and you know, make sure that it's not just a, a short-term thing that we run these competitions and we give these scholarships and all the rest. But uh, the more it is, it's going in the right direction. I agree. I have to uh, give a plug to punchdrink.com. My, my former colleague and friend, Talia Bayoki, and what she's doing there with yeah. a diversity in mind. She's got yeah. incredible writers from that, that not from that white. Yeah, male, yeah. mostly male point of view. Yeah. Because it was also a boys club too, right, for years? It was. Although, to be honest, I just, you know, got on with it. Um, yeah, sure. But but no, I suppose it was. Actually, in, in Britain, we always we, I was by no means the first female wine writer. Mm-hmm. We always had quite a lot of female wine writers. Okay. But we have, uh, last week, um, there's one nice little new ring development. I went to the London premiere of a lovely new film called Blind Ambition, Mm -hmm. which is about these four Zimbabwean refugees who crossed into South Africa and were gardeners and things like that. And they rose, they were all male, I'm afraid, but they all rose to be the sommeliers of the four top Cape Town um, restaurants and then put a Zimbabwean team into the World Wine Tasting Championships. So that was a it's a great story. Yeah. And I knew it was a great story. So I, I, I emailed everyone I could think of who might film it. And finally, um, an Australian team who'd already made one good film about the Chinese falling in love with wine. Mm-hmm. got. And I think it came out, it, its first debut was at the Tribeca Film Festival here. Yeah, I saw it mentioned for Tribeca. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was the audience favorite of the festival. That's one. It's called yeah. Blind Ambition. Yeah. We'll... we'll link to that. Two more questions. First off, um, you know, I want to get your take. If you're giving the keynote at the CIA Culinary Institute of America to a bunch of wine professionals, you know, the next generation of wine professionals, these are the the wine, the sommeliers, the uh, the wine managers, the, the buyers of these restaurants and maybe even wine shops. What are you, what's the message for the next generation of wine professional? I would say develop your own taste and f- stick to it. Follow it. Don't look at what other people think taste has to be subjective and carve your own way um, and be, be true to yourself great that's great words I think I think we do f- in food and in wine we, we follow we, we feel like we have to fit into a trends certain mold and, trends are just like we have to write in a certain way and s- speak in a certain way but certainly that's not the not the case you, that's not how you operated your life as a writer I know certainly not <laughs> um and I'm thinking here of Kate, Jamie Oliver, for instance. Um, it was quite funny when he started off 
and it was a huge success in the UK, you know, initially called The Naked Chef. I think. Oh, yeah, we had him on the podcast maybe six months ago. Yeah, yeah, great, yeah and lovely guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, of course, everyone was going around at that stage saying, who's the Jamie Oliver of wine? <laughs> but the, it's crazy. You, you, you shouldn't be the, the ex you know, a copy of somebody else. You've got to be yourself. Be your own person. We, we ask all guests in the Taste Podcast, if there was a dream book project that you could work on without the burden of time, meaning you'd have unlimited, no deadline, unlimited time, or the burden of budget, meaning you'd have unlimited funds, what would that book project be? I know, exactly. Um, way back, was it about 89? Can't remember. Um, I published, I wrote a book called Vintage Time Charts. A publisher asked me to chart how different vintages of very famous wines, sort of you know, um, archetypal wines, evolved. And so it was literally a series of graphs, a, a line for each vintage of Latache, for instance, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I'd love to do that again at my own pace. At your and own so, pace. Yeah. No <laughs> deadline. So you could be like a 20-year project. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. I hope you can do that. <laughs> Jancis Robinson, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.